Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 24th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening's program was kind of hastily put together. I really didn't have a topic until about mm, 10 a.m. this morning. And I've been typing ever since because it took me longer to put it together than I thought. It might be a quilt work, but I think it is pertinent. And I pray that y'all listen along and that it makes sense. In the end, there are only Jews or Nazis. There are no other choices. You're going to be a Jew or a Nazi in the end. A sheep or a goat, a wheat or a tear, a Jew or a Nazi. Sometimes when I do a presentation such as this, I feel as if I am just speaking to the choir. And so do many of our friends and listeners. But that is not entirely true. According to Cloudflare, these past few months at Christagenia, we have been getting in excess of 250,000 visitors each week. I occasionally make posts to that effect on social media, with as many as 400,000 page views. I'm sure that most of them don't stick around. This year, the main Christagenia website alone is on track to exceed 3.2 million file downloads, which is up over 10% from last year. The Media and Mein Kampf Project websites add another 600,000 to that number. But most of those downloads are videos and not necessarily our own content. From 2000, from 2017 to 2021, our website traffic has more than tripled. But the point is, that we never know who we are reaching. And that is, it is all in the hands of Yahweh our God. But each year, we have been able to reach many more people than we have in past years. Just yesterday, and this is a digression, but my point will hopefully become evident. Just yesterday, a longtime friend, who was also the first contact on a new Twitter account, which I opened just about six weeks ago, and I had a particular reason for opening it. He had asked me about a reference I made in a paper I wrote in prison in 2007, or probably earlier, which was titled, The Problem with Genesis Chapter 6, Verses 1-4. through He asked me about the alternate reading of the Greek text of Genesis chapter 6 verse 2, which I had supplied from Brenton Septuagint in a note citing the Codex Alexandrinus. Of course, being in prison, that was my only resource for the citation at that time. But my friend had done us a favor because he himself found another publication of the Greek Septuagint from 1887, which contained the variation in Brenton's note in his text. 
So I decided to spend a few hours, which ended up consuming most of my day, diving into a facsimile copy of the Codex Alexandrinus, which I found free online at the website for the British Museum, and deciphering the Greek of the Codex for myself, something which is actually quite difficult to do, deciphering it for myself so that I could see whether Breton's footnote and the reading which my friend had found from Henry Barclay Sweet's Old Testament in Greek, according to the Septuagint, I wanted to see if they were accurate. If you're not familiar with this paper, in the problem with Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4, I noted that in Genesis chapter 6 verse 2, where the Masoretic text and other manuscripts of the Septuagint have sons of God, the Codex Alexandrinus, according to Brenton, and also according to Sweet, and I'll pronounce his name Sweet, because it's S-W-E-T-E, and I don't want to pronounce it Sweat. They had, Brenton had angels of God in a footnote, and Sweet actually had angels of God in the text, and he didn't even make a footnote that other manuscripts had sons of God, even though he made many such footnotes of alternative readings. This article which resulted from this, I posted as a comment on that paper, and it's currently linked on the front page of Christogenia. But this isn't why I'm getting into this. I want to explain why I did this. I decided to spend hours, which consumed most of the day, studying this facsimile of this codex and decoding it, if you will, interpreting what each readable Greek letter was and what words it spelled. And that takes hours just to do a column or half a column in a codex. So, with that, I made a sort of infographic from the manuscript and assembled an article of nearly 1,500 words in English and Greek that I could publish at Christogenia as an addendum for my 2007 paper. I began that endeavor in the morning, and I finished it at around 5.30 p.m. I spent twice as long as I originally thought. And much of the time was spent deciphering the codex, and that's very painstaking work. It's slow, and it's much more painstaking for me because I do not do it frequently enough. If I did it all the time, perhaps I could have reduced the time which it took to do it quite drastically, but it's something that you have to do all the time and keep practiced in order to do efficiently. Let's put it that way. But my point here is not to speak about the Codex Alexandrinus or even Genesis chapter 6. Although that does actually represent the root of our problems as white Christians today. That's another story entirely. My point is to illustrate the amount of time required to investigate just one small issue in a scholarly manner. As I have said recently elsewhere, having now studied for 25 years, 
That alone has taught me that it takes years of study in a field to really break new ground in it, to prove a thesis, to develop the arguments necessary to defend that thesis, and to be able to write about it in a way which eventually exposes infallible truths. I hope I am getting better at that. And I hope the improvements have been apparent in my recent work, in the commentaries on the scriptures authored by both Solomon and John. Yet, I know that I could still work to improve it all, and pray that I can also accomplish that. But somehow, all of those years of study and writing, they need to be funded. We currently have very little funding. These past four years, the same years in which we have grown exponentially, we've been cut off from many sources of our sources of funding. Now, I am not complaining, and I am not planning on quitting. There is no quitting, but neither is that my point this evening. In other words, I really don't want to talk about that, but I felt compelled to mention it. Comparatively, our enemies, the enemies of white Christian society are also the ones that print the money. So they always seem to have all the financing that they require. And they have been far more diligent to build a schematic for the deconstruction of white Christian society than we have been to elucidate the true purposes of our God and our race from scripture. Lately, we have heard a lot about Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. These phenomena did not come out of nowhere. And the Jewish media did not invent them yesterday or last year. These phenomena are also the result of many years of work on the part of our enemies as they come out of the critical theory of the Frankfurt School, a group of Jewish academics who was thrown out of Germany by the National Socialists in the 1930s and were invited, both invited and welcomed, to America with open arms by Columbia University. From there, in a short time, they all had notable positions with various universities from New York to California, and they have been working towards a Marxist revolution in America ever since. And my point is that they are on the long march, and we must also be on the long march. When we commit ourselves to this cause, we should stay with it, and we should see it through to the end, for as long as we possibly can. There's no turning back. As a disclaimer, even before the Frankfurt School, as Henry Ford explained over and over again in The International Jew, a serious study of the actors behind every treacherous program in history reveals that Jews were behind women's lib, civil rights, the emancipation of Negroes, the removal of Christianity from our schools and our government, the Judaizing of organized religion, 
and all other subversive movements that have precipitated the decline of the West. The true face of communism was being glossed over and Marxism was being promoted in major newspapers, especially the New York Times, as early as the 19th century, but even after the Bolshevik Revolution. Of course, the Frankfurt School is not a school in the sense of being an educational institution, but rather in the sense of being a common philosophy and having shared objectives, which has in turn infiltrated and infected educational institutions. Long ago, in April of 2010, we published a series of articles, all of which I did not write, on the Frankfurt School denizens at our Mein Kampf Project website, along with some videos and other resources. There we discussed the backgrounds and careers of Antonio Gramsci, and also of George Lukacs, Herbert Marcuse, Max Horkheimer, and Theodore Adorno, the key figures of the school. Gramsci was not a founder of the school, but he was a Marxist philosopher and political theorist whose ideas the school had fully embraced. He was the founder of the Communist Party of Italy. But that, in turn, was the result of research I had done for a December 2009 series of podcasts on the Frankfurt School with Sword Brethren. They will also be linked here. For the final presentation in that series, we interviewed Professor Kevin McDonald, who has written at length on the subject. But here I can only refer our listeners and readers to the resources. I cannot possibly recount in a short space all of the damage this well group that this group of well financed Marxist Jews have done to our society these last eighty years in pursuit of their communist revolution. But the civil unrest we see amongst the beasts and deviance of Western society certainly is the result of their efforts, I should say the civil unrest and social upheaval, because it is an upheaval. But to begin a short discussion of critical race theory, I'm going to cite a very unlikely source, unlikely for me, I believe, but only because it is a good reflection of how mainstream conservatives perceive it, and why many mainstream conservative parents are protesting against it in school board meetings over recent months. So I was not surprised that a mainstream conservative woman wrote such an article as I am that it was published in Newsweek magazine. That surprised me. But then again, our enemies have always sought to control the opposition to their own programs, and in that manner, they seek to inhibit any true opposition to their objectives. So in June of 2021, 
Newsweek magazine published an opinion piece by Liz Wheeler titled Critical Race Theory is Repackaged Marxism. Liz Wheeler is a perceptibly Anglo-American woman who was born in 1989 in Cincinnati and raised as a Roman Catholic. She was a prominent young conservative at the age of 24. She's like the Matthew Heimbach of conservatards. And she spoke at CPAC in 2016. For several years, Wheeler had her own television broadcast on the One America News Network, which Wikipedia describes as being pro-Trump and very wrongly characterizes as far-right. In any event, Wheeler is a good characterization of the words of the prophet Isaiah, where he wrote, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee, cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy path, the way of thy paths. Wheeler is anything but far right. It's amazing that the Jews would characterize relative centrists as being far right in order to make true men and women of the far right look like absolutely raging lunatics. But in fact, the things that we believe today, the centrists believed a hundred years ago. We are citing her article here because it is a good reflection of what mainstream conservatives know or what they are willing to admit about the Frankfurt School. Wheeler is not on the cutting edge. As I have said, we were speaking of these things 12 years ago. Men such as Kevin MacDonald have been studying the issue much longer than that and perhaps 30 years or longer since his first book on the subject was published 20 years ago. But perhaps, with so many mainstream conservatives coming close to what we already know, if they are pushed for just a few more goose steps, they too can be Nazis. Although, in other ways, they still have a long row to hoe. The article begins where she spoke of a school in Rhode Island which was considering suing a woman for merely inquiring and requesting records regarding to the school curriculum. So Willow wrote, In fact, critical race theory isn't a theory at all, nor is it a perspective of teaching history. It is racism and bigotry. And not only that, it's an attempt to revive a failed Marxist agenda. Well, I'm not so sure it failed because we are basically a Marxist country today. It is true that critical race theory itself is racist. But Wheeler and most other conservatives strive not to notice or judge people according to their race because they themselves are greater, they are now, I should say, they are now greater egalitarians than the Jews who pretend to be egalitarians. 
conservatives have adopted all of the values of Jewish liberalism, which Jews want to impose on whites, but which Jews themselves do not live, but by which Jews themselves do not live. That is because, in reality, Jews only want to destroy whites. Until Wheeler acknowledges that Marxism is Jewish, and that critical theory is really its vehicle for destroying the West, she will never see the hypocrisy. But where she continues, she does make the Frankfurt School connection. She says, Critical race theory is an offshoot of critical theory, the brainchild of the Frankfurt School. A group of 20th 20th century Marxists associated with the Institute for Social Research. Then she explains that the founders of the Institute initially wanted to call it the Institute for Marxism. But they feared that they would alienate the public. Only later will, will she inform us that this must have happened in Germany. She only informs us circumstantially. But she will never inform us that nearly all of these schools' leading figures were Jews, as Marx was also a Jew. So she continues. In 1937... Max Horkheimer of the Frankfurt School wrote a manifesto about critical theory in which he claimed that when examining society, people cannot reason objectively. In classic Marxist fashion, critical theory divides everyone in society into classes of oppressed and oppressors, but posits that the so-called oppressed stand in the way of revolution when they adhere to the societal beliefs and cultural norms of their so-called oppressors. Therefore, the cultural institutions that stand in the way of the Marxist revolution must be destroyed through relentless criticism. Hence the name critical theory. And of course, that's why Jews are forever criticizing Christianity. No matter how much the denominational Christian churches bend over backwards to worship and to please the Jews, they are forever criticizing Christianity because they their ultimate goal and their goal from the beginning has been to destroy it. She continues, and she says, This is crucial, because by the 1930s, Marxists were realizing that Karl Marx's vision of a worker-led revolution wasn't going to sweep the West. Of course, the Marxists blamed workers. Antonio Gramsci, the founder of the Italian Communist Party, claimed the workers had not successfully revolted because they still relied on institutions of the ruling class, like the family, religion, and country. Gramsci's observation took critical theory one step further. 
Gramsci posited that workers needed to be re-educated in order to overthrow the capitalist systems that were allegedly stymieing the worker-led Marxist revolution. How did this Marxist ideology infiltrate American society? When Horkheimer and his fellow Marxists fled to Germany to escape the Nazis, they found refuge at Columbia University. Just her use of the word Nazi tells us how much she is programmed. But we will also own that word Nazi this evening. Horkheimer returned to Germany after the world defeated the Nazis, but left behind his associate, Herbert Marcuse. It was Marcuse who helped morph critical theory into critical race theory in the United States by identifying a new worker for the revolution who could be re-educated to overthrow societal norms, racial minorities. In other words, Marcuse purposely convinced his fellow Marxists through his writings, and this was very effective, that they should give up on trying to radicalize the common laborer and start radicalizing minorities against white Western society. All of this is wonderful, but if Wheeler could also explain that Marx was a Jew, and Horkheimer and Marcuse were Jews, and that they had to flee the Nazis because they were revolutionary Jews seeking to bring a communist revolution to Germany and the rest of Western Europe, and that now that we have Black Lives Matter destroying American cities for that same cause, people might come to realize that the Nazis, or rather National Socialists, really weren't so evil after all. But of course, if she did that, her article would never have been published in Newsweek. Call them anything, but don't call them what they are. Don't dare call them Jews. Continuing with Wheeler, she explains why it is that Marxists in America exploit non-whites. In the words of Marcuse, Underneath the conservative popular base is the substratum of the outcasts and outsiders, the exploited and persecuted of other races and other colors. According to Marcuse, their opposition is revolutionary if their consciousness is not. So, we see that Marcuse actually did change horses in the middle of the river. He he changed horses in the middle of his career. Since a worker-led revolution wasn't happening, they needed another oppressed class to serve their purpose. That purpose was to tear down Western institutions that stood in the way of revolt and stage a Marxist revolution. Using racial minorities as their new vanguard would be brilliant. Who better to re-educate than a demographic of people whose ancestors had suffered oppression in America based on their skin color? And that probably and almost certainly was not true. 
Who better to paint as victims of a belief system of the oppressors? And to claim the only way to liberation was to demolish the institutions of the oppressors. And actually the only reason why blacks were enslaved was because their own village chieftains sold them into slavery, selling them to Jews and Arabs as slaves. That's why blacks were enslaved. Now Wheeler contrasts that to the values of liberalism, which in her mind are workable. In other words, the designers and adherents of critical theory admitted their true intent. Not equality under the law, not civil rights, not freedom, liberty, and justice for all, not a better life for racial minorities. Critical theorists admit their intent is to use racial minorities as the vanguard for a Marxist revolution. Thus, critical race theory was born. Now we see this slimy ideology creeping into every aspect of American life. From corporations staging white privilege trainings, to school curricula that teach students to view everything and everybody through the prism of race. And it is amazingly hypocritical. I have to agree with Wheeler on that. So in Wheeler's conclusion, while she is correct about the objectives of Jewry, a word and an entity for which Marxist may perceive to be nothing but a euphemism, she nevertheless continues to spout the failed ideas of liberalism. And she asks, why does critical theory peddle bigoted and obviously false assumptions about individuals based on their skin color? Not pure racial hatred. Racialism is a tactic, a tool used by critical race theorists to tear down American institutions. I must say that the Jew has always been the world's foremost hypocrite. And that should be clear in the words of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 23. But not answering the Jewish question, Wheeler will never be able to answer that question. The Jew will go to any length whatsoever to completely destroy white Christian society. And the Jew considers every professing Christian to be a Nazi because Jews see the moral precepts upheld by Christians as the source of their oppression. This we shall discuss at length later on where it is to some degree an open profession of so-called critical theory. So Willer concludes, and she probably got this list of Marxist objectives from the planks of the Communist Manifesto, where she wrote, their aims to abolish the nuclear family, abolish gender, defund the police, abolish the border, abolish prisons, abolish the Senate, abolish the Electoral College, abolish ICE the Immigration Authority. Abolish voter ID. Abolish capitalism. Abolish private charter schools. Abolish religious freedom. Abolish free speech. Abolish rights. Abolish objective truth. Abolish reality.
She asks, sound familiar? Democratic political agenda items are textbook critical race theory. We should reject its reduction of people to the color of their skin. It's a tool with a dangerously clear purpose. To impose simple, unadulterated Marxism in the United States of America. We must overwhelmingly reject it in its entirety on the basis of what it really is. This would be so much better if she were cognizant of the Jewish question. Or, if she is aware of it, if she could only spell it out. But that being said, she is blind to the degree to which she herself and all mainstream conservatives have already accepted the Marxist agenda so that Jews could even take it this far. For example, all public schools are actually government schools, and they exist in fulfillment of one important plank in the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto. A true anti-communist would want to abolish all government schools as their very existence is a form of Marxism. But more importantly, going back at least as far as the French Revolution, when the slogan Liberty, Equality, Fraternity first came into the general public consciousness, the motto is credited to either Maximilien Robespierre, the humanist and borderline atheist, who sought to replace Christianity in France with the cult of the supreme being. Or, others credit it to the Herbertist revolutionary, Antoine Francois Momoro, a Spanish-born atheist. Atheist, I'm sorry. It was the Herbertists who played a significant role in the French Revolution who had ruled France during the Reign of Terror. They were also supporters of removing Christianity from France. The slogan is a communist slogan with its roots in the Jewish revolutions of Europe. It expresses a concept which has never been true. And Wheeler and all other so-called conservatives have fallen for its principles. So as long as they adhere to it, they will never prevail over the Jews themselves. The Jews that they won't even name. But contrary to Liz Wheeler is another so-called conservative. A Jew named Brian Leiter, who is a law professor at the University of Chicago. I should call it Chicago. The University of Chicago who writes at length about philosophy, and especially the philosophy of law. In a November 2021 blog post, Leiter asked, what is critical race theory, and what does it have to do with critical theory, i.e. the Frankfurt School? In it, he strives to disassociate critical race theory from the Frankfurt School, and even to dismiss it as a formidable threat to our current state of society. So he makes assertions such as the critical race theory scare, a bit like the old red scare, 
has conjured up a bogeyman from a minor movement in academic legal scholarship. And he uses those dismissals, those assertions, to attack the more narrow efforts of just a few race-baiting lawyers. So, as part of his conclusion, he states, the contrast with the critical theory of the Frankfurt School is stark. The one superficial affinity between CRT and Frankfurt School critical theory is the idea that the theory aims to emancipate people from oppression. Of course, the Jews don't want to emancipate anyone from oppression. The Jews want to oppress us all, but that's a different story. He says that simple idea accounts for the proliferation of critical theory blather in the humanities and social sciences ever since. And then he states, but that is where the similarity ends. Now, this is the perfect uh, example of a Jew telling the proverbial big lie. We will not publish any more of his disinformation than that. But it always seems that there are at least a few prominent Jews who are always around to cloud each and every issue which arises in society. However, Leiter's assertions are completely contrary to those of Wheeler. So to find out who is right, we will go to an original source, which is the University of California at Berkeley. This alone exposes Leiter as a source of Jewish disinformation. The following is redacted from a page at the website for the University of California at Berkeley titled, The Program in Critical Theory. Now, I'm relatively certain, even though I didn't check, that I could find this page on the websites for at least most of the University of California campuses. This program is not restricted to Berkeley. I'm only using Berkeley as my example here. Critical theory is often associated with the Frankfurt School. The term eventually coined to identify a core group of intellectuals working in and around the Institute for Social Research, founded in 1923, and affiliated to this day, except for its exile during and in the immediate aftermath of the National Socialist regime, with the Johann Wolfgang Goethe University of Frankfurt. So they affiliate themselves with the Goyim University, and that way they can hide being Jews, perhaps. The Institute's founders sought to develop new methodologies combining theoretical and empirical approaches to explore the unprecedented complexities, difficulties, and suffering engendered by modern industrial capitalist society and the often authoritarian political responses to it. That's a mouthful. I understand. With regard to the left responses... With regard to left responses, left with a capital L, to modernity, the Frankfurt School sought to develop alternatives 
to the determinist rigidities of orthodox versions of Marxian theory, whether social democratic or Leninist. As members of the Frankfurt School themselves often acknowledged, many of the fundamental concepts supporting critique had already emerged in recognizably modern form in the work of 18th and 19th century figures like Immanuel Kant, G.W.F. Hegel, you've heard of Hegelian dialect, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and others. In addition, 20th century contributions to critical thinking by Sigmund Freud, Jew, Max Weber, Jew, George Simmel, Jew, and George Lukacs, Jew, among others, would prove crucial for the Frankfurt School. In light of this history and ongoing development of the idea of critique, UC Berkeley's designated emphasis in critical theory offers courses on foundational 19th century theories and discourses of critique on the Frankfurt School and on other modern and contemporary forms of critical theory, including critical race theory, post-colonial theory, feminism, gender studies, queer theory, critical legal theory, sounds like lawfare, and modes of critique arising from structuralism and post-structuralism. The appeal to non-Jewish philosophers is, in my opinion, only a ploy to de-emphasize the Jewish origins of critical theory the in the way it is practiced by the Frankfurt School because it's not the same critical theory as those philosophers. Except perhaps for the Jews having copied some of their methodology, they have little in common those philosophers have little in common with the thoughts and objectives of Judaism. All of the founding figures of the Frankfurt School were Jewish. Horkheimer, Marcuse, Lukacs, and Adorno were all unquestionably Jews. Here it is admitted by proponents of critical theory the University of California at Berkeley, that not only is critical theory a product of the Frankfurt School, but that critical race theory is a product of critical theory. In the very next paragraph, the university downplays the significance of all this and portrays it as something innocent, where it says, in part, I'm not going to read the entire page, in general, Critical theory is an effort to understand the social organization of economics, politics, culture, and the arts, and indeed of everyday life, in order to establish the grounds from which existing social dispensations and their values can be grasped and questioned, and from which alternative social practices and formations can be projected. And actually, what they do is construct ways to undermine 
existing social norms, existing social dispensations and their values. They do that by using the depraved minority without a doubt. That's queer theory. That's critical race theory. The truth is that by embracing critical race theory, which is related to post-colonial theory, they are actually normalizing and ultimately advocating the concepts expressed by those theories. That same thing is true where they profess to embracing feminism, gender studies, so-called queer theory, and all the other resulting perversions. They are not critiquing these things. Rather, they are promoting them in order to critique and ultimately to subvert the greater traditional Christian Western society. The concepts of structuralism and post-structuralism are only ploys through which they advocate the deconstruction of Western society and the rule of law which has been formulated and maintained by white Europeans and to a great extent founded upon Christian laws and principles. Reading a little further so we can see the impact, effect, and extent of this program. The designated emphasis in critical theory, we're going to learn that this is only an extra sort of merit badge that they affix to a PhD that tells you or, or identifies you as part of a special club. The designated emphasis in critical theory now serves approximately 100 graduate students enrolled in established Ph.D. programs across the social sciences, arts, and humanities at the University of California at Berkeley. Please note, this is their own parenthetical remark, critical theory is not an independent degree-granting program. Students wishing to apply to the designated emphasis must already be enrolled in a UC Berkeley PhD program. In other words, you could be going for a PhD in humanities and you can enroll to earn this designated emphasis designation, which sets you apart from all the other PhD candidates. It makes you special in the eyes of these Frankfurt School Jews. Students admitted to the designated emphasis who complete its requirements will receive a parenthetical notation to that effect on their doctoral degrees stating that they had been certified as having obtained a designated emphasis specialization in critical theory. The program in critical theory and its DE designated emphasis offers graduate fellowships, hosts international scholars, and presents lecturers, seminars, and other events for faculty, graduate, and undergraduate students, as well as interested members of the larger San Francisco Bay Area community, where Herbert Marcuse's 
oldest son is a practicing lawyer to this very day. The program also maintains important collaborative relations with other critical theory institutes and programs, nationally and internationally. And I'm sure there's a ton of them. That means that out of all the PhD candidates at Berkeley, the Berkeley campus of the University of California, 100 of them are pursuing this so-called designated emphasis, which will evidently give them special credentials in the emerging society of wokeism. But not everyone can join this club, as the article concludes by stating that petitions for admission admission to the designated emphasis are accepted each spring for admission to the program the following fall. There are no more than 15 new students admitted each year. So there you go. This is critical theory organized and given a special role for graduate students who choose to enroll into it and who are accepted. So you could be a just plain nigger or a special super Marxist nigger. In the online magazine, jewishcurrents.org, there is an article titled Gramsci, Yiddish, and Building Cultural Barricades, written by a Jew named Lane Silberstein, who is apparently a New York City Jew, and published, the article was published nearly three years ago. It opens with the statement that far-right populism is insurgent internationally. Greece and Germany, and of course the United States and Israel, form a part of this wave. This is a deeply disturbing trend for Jews, particularly for those of us involved in the political-cultural struggle. This worldwide phenomenon is not reducible to either cultural or economic causes. And with this essay, a mix of personal narrative and Marxist analysis, I mean to broaden the identity politics, class politics binary and introduce the idea that you cannot have one without the other. This author is an avowed Marxist. And after complaining about the rise of populist parties, such as Golden Dawn in Greece and the AFD in Germany, which he disparages as fascist movements and Nazism, he goes on to quote a Frankfurt School denizen, and he says, The far right in both Greece and Germany play on xenophobia fortifying a nationalist identity which liberals don't dare challenge for fear of losing their own bases of support. I don't ever see that. This is the Jewish perception, the Marxist Jewish perception. He continues, To appeal today to the liberal mentality of the 19th century against fascism, said Max Horkheimer, means appealing to what brought fascism to power. 
You can claim to be anti-fascist in the name of proper European identity. But once you criticize the civil society and culture that give rise to fascism, as Horkheimer does, you start speaking a language that liberals don't understand. Liberal identity politics are vulnerable to exploitation by fascists and are not equipped to counter fascism. We would say the same thing about conservatives in America, for the most part. So long as liberals remain liberal, the world is apparently safe for Jewry. Conservatives such as Liz Wheeler simply do not understand how liberal they truly are and how that liberalism creates a world which is relatively safe for culminating the eventual dominance of Marxism, which we see today. I should say for nurturing and culminating. A little further on in his article, we read, I understand that identity politics, for the most part, begins with something immutable. I cannot change the fact that I am a Jew. However, under capitalism, I cannot fully cultivate my Jewish identity. And there he hits the nose on the head, because race is immutable. Capital, But capitalism itself was a Jewish revolution which overthrew feudalism. Only Jews, in most principalities in Europe at that time, only Jews could loan money at usury. Only Jews were usurers, usurers holding the capital. That is outside the scope of our discussion here. I actually spoke about it at length in the Protocols of Satan some years ago. For this Jew, and for many more like him, only Marxism and the full implementation of the Communist Manifesto will ever suffice. The Jew, fully aware of his own sense of identity, strives to maintain it. Yet, at the same time, he despises other groups who desire to preserve their own identities as Nazis and fascists. This, too, is hypocrisy. But, hypocrisy is an innate trait found amongst all Jews. Continuing, a little further on, he appeals to the left, almost as if it is synonymous with Jewry. If the left, and we saw the same thing in the introduction to critical theory at UC Berkeley, If the left cares about Jewish liberation, not just from fascism, but from forces that create fascism, we should turn to thinkers who have had first-hand experiences with it. Antonio Gramsci was imprisoned by Mussolini, experiencing conditions that would severely compromise his health and eventually kill him. He is one of the foremost Marxists when it comes to resisting in the political-cultural realm.
and I should say we saw the left being addressed in the same manner in the introduction to critical theory at Berkeley. So they know that, quote-unquote, right-leaning people aren't going to be taking, taking those courses. They just know it. They know it ahead of time. They know what they are. So this is this writer's second appeal to a prominent 20th century communist associated with the Frankfurt School. First to Marcuse and then to Gramsci, even though Gramsci was not directly associated. Later in his article, he reveals his own concept of divisions among Jews by identifying himself as a Yiddish Jew and contrasting that to capitalist so-called Hebrew Jews, which is another sort of misnomer. And it is on that basis that he criticizes even the Israeli state for its perceived nationalism. Perhaps he sees communist role models as Yiddish Jews. However, I am persuaded that this particular Jew is a fair representative of the sentiments of many leftist and European Jews who all seem to gravitate towards the left and communism even if they never want communism for themselves. Neither did Lenin, Trotsky, Marx, and Engels. Those men, or those Jews, did not want communism for themselves. They only wanted it for everybody else. And it's the same thing with Stalin and right on down the line and all of the Soviet apparatchiks. In a paper published at California State University at Stanilas, the Stanilas campus, titled Marx, Engels, and the Abolition of the Family by Richard Weikart, we read in its opening lines, It is a peculiar fact, stated Engels, a few months after Marx died, that with very, that with every great revolution, I'm sorry, that with every great revolutionary movement, the question of free love comes to the foreground. By the mid to late 19th century, it was clear to advocates and opponents alike that many socialists shared a propensity to reject the institution of the family in favor of free love, if not in practice, at least as an ideal. Now, I could have gone here, and I really didn't have time in this presentation, to discuss free love at length. But in the Russian number one reports, which we have published at Christagenia, and I must say that it was at Christagenia that the Russian number one reports were first published on the Internet, that we have reports from Russia, from British diplomats back to the British Foreign Office in the United Kingdom, first and second-hand reports from Russia of the forced implementation of free love by the Bolsheviks, whereby any woman was prohibited from refusing the advances of any man. Free love they've managed to gain here in America through their promotion of every corruption. 
they desensitize our youths and our children to sex and basically through their programs and through their media, they train them to give it to anybody that wants it, basically. And many of them do. And for that same reason, we see that the critical theory program at Berkeley has embraced subjects such as feminism, gender studies, and queer theory in order to normalize them in an effort to destroy the construct of the family. This is why Liz Wheeler justly accused the proponents of critical race theory of also having the objectives to abolish the nuclear family and to abolish the constructs of gender. But this movement actually started in America in the modern age with the so-called hippie and free love movements of the 1960s and earlier. The Jewish-controlled media has assisted the Jews of the Frankfurt School at nearly every turn, and they still do. And in fact, in the Weimar Republic and Germany, but also in America in the 1920s, the Jews had almost convinced American women to freely part with their panties. The only thing that stifled that was the Depression and the Second Year War. Once the 1950s came, the depravity train started rolling again. As for feminism, while we will not discuss that subject at length here, I have compiled a list of nearly 80 prominent feminist women who are actresses or authors or educators, radio or television hosts or lawyers, all of which are Jews. It can safely be said that nearly every prominent and well-known woman feminist, and I say woman feminist because there are also plenty of men feminists, every prominent and well-known female feminist has been a Jewess. Reading the names would be mundane, and I would like to expand the list with their vocations and presumed accomplishments before publishing it. But on the other hand, arguably, the most prominent of women anti-feminists is Christina Hoff Summers, and she is also Jewish. They always control or seek to control both sides of every debate. However, being a prominent woman anti-feminist, one must first be a feminist because only a feminist would be a prominent public voice, a prominent female public voice in the first place. So even a Jewish anti-feminist is really a feminist. A true anti-feminist woman is home-raising a family and does not seek a public voice at all. She serves as a model, not as a commentator. But before I depart from this subject, I want to do a brief survey of some of the products of the University of California.
critical race program. Now, I'm not sure they all have PhD, PhDs, I'm sorry. The first is Kim Tran. And I'll have links to all of these women in one way or another. Kim Tran is of Vietnamese ethnicity and apparently a woman. I can't really tell. Today you just don't know. She advertises herself on the LinkedIn website as a PhD and a consultant who specializes in intersectional solutions, research, and writing at the University of California at Berkeley. Her own private website, there she helps to define intersectional solutions, where we read, Kim Tran works at the intersection of social protest, race, and gender. Somehow I doubt if she was on the streets of Milwaukee last year on any of those intersections. I somehow just don't think so. She uses a grassroots organizing and transformative justice approach in her anti-oppression consulting with nonprofit, philanthropic, and social impact spaces. Kim holds a PhD in ethnic studies from UC Berkeley. Her academic research centers Asian American solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. As if niggers just love chinks too. Her work has been featured in Vice, Teen Vogue, and NPR, meaning National Public Radio. Basically another, and the government-funded Marxist agency. By watching people such as Kim Tran, we can see the degree of the spreading impact of this legacy of the Frankfurt School. Another Berkeley product is a Negress named Fumi Akiji. Akiji. She's like from some shithole country in Africa, Nigeria or someplace like that. Fumi or Fumi Akiji is an assistant professor in the Department of Rhetoric at UC Berkeley. On her faculty page, we read, Fumi Akiji arrived at the academy by way of the London jazz scene, in which she took an active part as a vocalist and improviser. I guess that makes her an expert at rhetoric. She works across black study, critical theory, and sound and music studies. Her research and training looks to black expression for ways to understand modern and contemporary life, which is to say she explores works and practices for what they can provide by way of social theory. In other words, she's absolutely useless and she makes her living from pure bullshit, as they all do. Going on with her faculty page. For instance, her book, Jazz as Critique, Adorno and Black Expression Revisited, because nothing has to make sense to a nigger. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. That makes no sense at all. Her book is a sustained engagement 
with Theodore Adorno's idea concerning the critical potential of art. She proposes that the socio-musical play of jazz is not representative of the individualistic and democratic values the music is most readily associated with. The book centers blackness as a more appropriate, analytic, through which to understand its social significance, meaning the social significance of jazz. In other words, her entire thesis rests on the idea that jazz is for niggers. And in that manner, Henry Ford and her perfectly agree, I have to say. And I think I would agree, too. Jazz is for niggers. At least much jazz. We actually have friends that love jazz, and we can appreciate some of it, but that ballroom dancing of the 1920s is one thing that I was referring to when I explained that in the 1920s, the Jews were awfully close to separating our women from their panties, and it was through that vehicle, the flappers. So, I qualify my remarks about jazz with that explanation. So, researchers at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, are fully invested with the Frankfurt School. And without doubt, critical race theory is their product. That's where it came from. But that is not all. Two other products of the University of California are Patrice Colors and... Alicia Garza, although they graduated from the campuses at Los Angeles and San Diego, respectively. While we cited the page on critical theory from the Berkeley campus, the philosophy is taught throughout the university. In the Wikipedia article for Colors, we read in part that other topics on which Colors advocates include prison abolition in Los Angeles, and LGBTQ rights. Colors integrates ideas from critical theory, as well as socialist movements around the world, in her activism. She is the author of When They Call You a Terrorist, Black Lives Matter Memoir. A Black Lives Matter Memoir. Well, she is a terrorist. She and her friends here are totally responsible for the destruction of several large neighborhoods in American cities last year. And many acts of looting, pillaging, murder, rape, and robbery. They instigated them. If I sat here and instigated people against Jews, I would be in prison tomorrow. And I wouldn't do that. It's not our philosophy. But if I did it, I would be in prison tomorrow. But these niggers with PhDs can instigate all these ruffians and ah, savages in our inner cities to just blow things up and they still have their multi-million dollar mansions. In fact, several of them in the case of Patrice Cullors. This is the same woman who declared on syndicated television speaking for both herself and Alicia Garza, that we are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. 
superversed on ideological theories, as she thinks. Likewise, the Wikipedia article for Alicia Garza attests that, among other things, she is organized around the issues of ending police brutality, anti-racism, and violence against transgender and gender non-conforming people of color. They will corral every circus freak that they could find against white society. That That's basically Marcuse's objective, and it's basically what the critical theory at the University of California is obviously doing, and what the graduates of those schools are doing. The campaign to end police brutality is actually expressed in calls to defund the police as yet another path to Marxist revolution. These women are the product of all the ambitions and aspirations of Herbert Marcuse, as Liz Wheeler had quoted him as wanting to employ the outcasts and outsiders, the exploited and persecuted of other races and other colors. In his desire to launch a Marxist revolution in America, a third female founder of Black Lives Matter, Opal Tometi, went to school in Arizona, but her resume is much like that of these others. While we won't delve into it here, even the so-called Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was a trained Marxist, as there is documentation of his having attended a much cruder and less well-financed communist school in Tennessee prior to his own involvement in the civil rights movement. As reported by the Augusta Courier in 1961, King was photographed in attendance at such a school in Monteagle, Tennessee in 1957. So the so-called Black Lives Matter movement is really only a rewrite of a 60-year-old script. This is why this is also why I mentioned my efforts yesterday in deciphering a small portion of the Codex Alexandrinus. It takes hours of labor to develop and explain some concept, and large efforts require many years of the same repetitive labor. Our enemies at the Frankfurt School have been laboring for a hundred years now, and only now they are seeing their own efforts culminate in moving them towards their final objective. But even the Jews at a Frankfurt school and the universities such as Berkeley, which continue their program today, as well as the Negroes behind Black Lives Matter, are not even as openly evil as a relatively young French Jew named Greg Lansky. So sometimes the devil can reap results at much faster rates. Lansky was born in Paris in 1982. He's a youngster. He is now an American citizen, 
And in 2014, when he was only 31 years old, he founded a company called Vixen Media Group, which produces pornography. Can you guess? According to Wikipedia, Vixen Studios owns and operates seven online adult film sites. Vixen, Tushy, Blacked, Blacked Raw, Tushy Raw, Deeper, and Slayed. Six of these I know little about, but I do know something about Blacked, quite unfortunately, because it's pretty damn disgusting. Doing what I've done these last 13 years, I cannot help to know some uncomfortable things. When I was released from prison in very late 2008, assessing the internet and the social media landscape, I quickly learned about two trends which are continually pushed by Jewish pornographers. The first is cuckoldry, which seems to be quite popular in Britain. This is the term from which we have the modern slur, cuck. There are apparently actual aficionados of cuckoldry who obtain sexual gratification by watching their wives have sex with other men and, more and more prevalently, with men of other races. I do not know if this trend is actually popular or if it is only made to look popular by Jews, who hire whores and niggers to play roles. However, they seem to push it fervently, perhaps hoping to catch a few, I'm not going to say innocent, because they're watching porn in the first place, they're not innocent, but hoping to catch a few unsuspecting men in their trap, let's put it that way. The second trend is represented by Greg Land. Greg Lansky's blacked brand of pornography. This certainly does seem to be a trend. I learned about blacked several years ago, checking out Black Lives Matter and Antifa sites and saw these memes from this blacked porno, whatever the hell it is, porno site, I guess. This certainly does seem to be a trend. As a post titled, Mud Sharking Tattoos, The Queen of Spades, was made in the Christagenia Forum four years ago, and now it has over 33,000 views, mostly from search engines. Google never ranks us very high in search engines. So to us, that indicates that many people are inquiring about it on the internet. Black produces videos of Negro males having sex with white women, and scenes from the movies are frequently used by radical Negroes, BLM and Antifa types, to make such unions seem more popular than they really are, while also bragging about supposed Negro sexual superiority and dominance. It is from that propaganda that I first learned of blacked in social media. So the blacked movie served the Jews of the Frankfurt School in several aspects of their objectives to destroy white society. This Greg Lansky 
does not necessarily have to be a Frankfurt School graduate in order to act like a Jew. Jews do this naturally. He must know how these things are being used. If I happened upon these trends so quickly, then I know that children everywhere are also happening upon them. There's no doubt. These kids with their cell phones, teenagers with cell phones, for what cause they need cell phones is beyond me. Teenagers and even preteens with cell phones have a world of pornography and debauchery open to them. And I'm sure that they're in it. I praise Yahweh, and I am grateful to Yahweh that I have never really, or never at all, cared for pornography. I have never watched a pornographic film. But with the prevalence and pervasion of porn throughout society, one would have to be willfully blind not to notice its effects, and how slowly and incrementally it bleeds over into mainstream media. That is also quite purposeful. It is my experience, having known many men, men who were co-workers and friends at one time or another, who were caught up in porn, that once one becomes enamored with some depravity, it is a slippery slope before one is caught up in all sorts of depravity. So a man who would like to see his wife in bed with another woman, will soon be in bed with another man in order to please his wife. It's inevitable. Then, because for the fleshly-minded man, the titillation of sensual pleasure wanes with repetition, which is one reason why it's all vanity in the first place, the bounds of decency and normalcy must be exceeded to an even greater degree in order for the degenerate to achieve the same level of fleshly satisfaction. So a man will slide deeper and deeper into perversion until he hits bottom and can no longer satiate his perverted desires. Depravity always destroys the unrepentant sinner and there is no escaping the inevitable consequences. In John's second epistle, The apostle warned that whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed, meaning him that greets him, he that greets him, that's all it means, is a partaker of his evil deeds. So the Christian who greets the Jew or a sinner is a comforter of the enemies of God and therefore he is a fellow partaker in pandering, pornography, fornication, sodomy, baby slaying, abortion clinics, or any other sins which they may be committing. The truly Christian concept is explained by Paul in Romans chapter 1, that when you accept a sinner, you are, in effect, accepting his sin. But today's churches, which have been 
which have also been infected with Judaism, are teaching precisely the opposite, because they themselves have become whores for the Jews. It is certainly no coincidence that any man today who vocalizes opposition to feminism, to queer theory, to race mixing, to pornography, to depravity in general, is branded as a Nazi by the Jew. To the Jew, Christian morality and the insistence that others maintain that morality within a Christian society is itself Nazism. Expecting a Jew to maintain any level of morality, especially a Jew of that Yiddish variety, as was the, the term which was used by Silberman, whom we cited earlier, is seen by them as a form of oppression. So the Jew, the eternal panderer, does everything in his power to corrupt the Christian. In the end, white Europeans, who are even marginally Christian, are more the victims of their own sin than that of any Jew. But white Christians who do not stand against sin are just as culpable as the sinner. The world has slid down a cliff and into the state of Sodom and Gomorrah. We are already there. We've long been there. But mainstream Christians and mainstream conservatives keep offering concessions. Their churches have changed their doctrines to accommodate depravity and are forever moving their defensive lines back closer and closer to the edge of oblivion. Then they wonder why things get worse and worse and never seem to get better. First it was women's liberation. And while women imagined to have been freed of the shackles of the patriarchy, the enemies of Christ have achieved their true objective which was to free our women from their panties. In the 1920s, women were voting. And by the 1960s, women were running around naked, sometimes even more brazenly than they do today. First, it was civil rights. And an unnatural equality is now enforced by all Western governments upon unequal races. But even that was not enough for the niggers. So now we have Black Lives Matter and defund the police so that they can pursue their careers of robbery and murder, robbery, rape, and murder with little fear of reprisal. First it was gay rights. And we have had a progressively growing list of acceptable perversions represented by alphabet soup labels. Now it is inevitable that soon we shall see the decriminalization and eventual legalization of pedophilia, for which they have already long been pushing. And after that, men and women alike will be walking down the marriage aisles with dogs and donkeys, because the two-legged beasts won't satisfy, satisfy their perverse depravity any longer. This is what our world is coming to. If we accept it, we may as well be Jews. 
and we may as well end up being Jews or even niggers. If we stand against it, we are Nazis. The Jews know that moral Christians, moral Christians, I'm sorry, I can't talk straight for some reason. The Jews know that moral Christians are Nazis, or at least they know that National Socialists were really moral Christians. Imagine that. Hitler was really a moral Christian. Yes, he was. We can deny the label Nazi, and I publicly do, because Nazi is a slander, and I don't want to accept it. But in the mind of our enemies, it is the reality. So why hide it? And they really are not wrong, because deep down, they know and understand the reasons for the backlash which they suffered in Europe. And they are forever in fear that it shall happen again. Their fear is justified. There is a God. And the next time there is a backlash, it will be forever. They're not coming back. Recently I have been seeing mainstream social media outlets publishing New York Times articles from the 1930s, which... Kvetch, yes, I'll use a Jewish term because it's Jews doing it, which Kvetch about Hitler and Christianity. The Jews knew that Adolf Hitler was defending Christianity then, and they know it now. But today, mainstream Christians do not even know what Christianity is, so they cannot imagine that Hitler was a Christian. For example, a front-page New York Times article from October 29, 1935, was titled, Hitler Repudiates Reich Neo-Pagans, Backs Christianity. There we read, in part, that Hitler will lead the party along the path of positive Christianity, and not along the false path of anti-Christian doctrine. But Hitler professed Christianity along with an antipathy towards paganism as early as Mein Kampf, which was written years earlier, ten years earlier, in 1925. Until Christians awaken to the true nature of the Jewish problem, which lies at the root of all of our problems, which is also the cause of all of our distorted worldviews. And that's the problem. Our sin is the real problem. But the Jew has corrupted what we see as sin. The Jew, through the media, and the infiltration of the churches, has blinded us as to what sin really is. And I don't mean we identity Christians, but I mean we as a race and as Christians in general. Today's Christians, through the corrupted doctrines of the churches, don't even understand that homosexuality is a grievous sin, worthy of stoning, never mind race mixing, which is also worthy of stoning. Today's Christians say, oh, hate the sin and love the sinner, but they don't even know that the faggot is a sinner. So they say, hate the sinner and love the faggot, or hate the sin and love the faggot. They'd say that in a minute. 
Until they learn what sin is, they can't repent. And until then, the future is Sodom and Egypt, just as the scripture warns. It's right in Revelation. And as long as we accept the Jewish lies about the Jews, about our Bibles, and about how it is that we should respond to sin, the real problem will never go away because Christians will continue to worship the Jews. There is a passage in Leviticus chapter 5, which the North American Standard Bible renders much better than the King James Version. So I will read that much better and much more accurately, but it's not quite perfect. Now, if a person sins, and after, he hears a public adjuration to testify. When he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Then there is a passage in Romans chapter 1, which I will read from the same source, the North American Standard Bible. There Paul had spoken of men and women engaged in same-sex or homosexual relationships. And in reference to that and their many other sins, he said of them, that although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only who do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So if you approve of somebody practicing a sin that's worthy of death, you are also a sinner in that same respect, worthy of that same punishment under the law, the ancient Israelite law, under the Hebrew law, the law of God. And in other words, as it is explained in Leviticus, if one sees a sin and does not testify against it, one is just as guilty as the sinner. For that same reason, as it is in Romans, Paul said that if one approves of the sinner by accepting the sinner, one is just as guilty of the sin as the sinner. The same Jesus Christ who said in John chapter 14, that if a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him, also said in Luke chapter 9, that whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Interestingly, Jews, true to their own beliefs, despise the word Christian as it is, as its use is virtually an admission of its truth that Christ is the anointed one or Messiah. So they won't use the term Christian. So we see in Acts chapter 24 that they had accused Paul of being of the sect of the Nazarenes, referring to Jesus, or Yahshua of Nazareth. Then, while it is not directly related to the word Nazi or to Nazareth, there is a Hebrew word for prince, which is spelled in English letters, in Strong's Concordance, as Nasi. Now, this is really a coincidence, but it is a convenient one. To a Jew, I do not mind, I do not mind being a Nazi in either of those senses. 
as a Christian or as a prince. In the end, we either choose to please men or we choose to please God. And we cannot possibly please both. Furthermore, we cannot please God without taking a stand against sin. As Christ said to the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3, I know thy works, and thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert hot or cold. In other words, I wish you were either hot or cold. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. We must serve as witnesses to our own people against all of the depravity and perversions promoted by the Jews. Doing that is the most effective way by which we can counter all of the money and influence of the Jews. If we would only repent of our sin, then all of the voluminous efforts of the Frankfurt School would unwind in a moment. So if we seek to please God, then we must be Nazis in the face of the Jews. As in the end, there will be nothing left but Nazis and Jews. And the Jews will finally get the Holocaust for which they have clamored. Be a Nazi. If we asked, what would Jesus do? We can only honestly answer that Jesus would also be a Nazi. He was certainly never a Jew. He was never a Jew. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not the God of the Jews. And good night.